As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Uh, as always, I'm, I'm Tim White and I'm joined once again by my dad, John. And as of last week, we're, we're staying with our guest from Cambridge. That's Dr. Andrew Davidson, uh, who is the Starbridge Associate Professor in Theology and Natural Sciences. Uh, thanks for, for coming on again, Andrew. Um, we, we wanted to, pick to be up, here. Uh, we, want, we wanted to pick up our conversation from last week where we kind of talked about the uh, the James Webb Telescope and, and more in general kind of space exploration, cosmology and, and how that intersects with our Christian faith. But we wanted to really dive into this concept you mentioned briefly of astrobiology. Um, that, that's the idea, correct me if I'm wrong here, Andrew, that's the kind of study of of bio- biology life uh, as uh, in the in the cosmos um and often understood as as kind of thinking about what happens if we discover aliens um that's one of the things the web telescope is looking for but but you you've been telling us that actually it's the most likely thing we find is not kind of you know humanoid gray skinned with huge eyes aliens of kind of sci-fi lore but perhaps a much less developed life form is that right yes if you think about the history of life on earth sentient life has only arisen in the last tiniest fraction so we have to imagine that most life elsewhere if there is any is not going to have reached self-awareness or however it is that you understand uh, sentience Um, and in fact we didn't know until relatively recently whether there was any prospect of there being life elsewhere in the universe and the the great moment was in 1995 when Didier Kahlo and Michael Major discovered a planet around another star in 1995 and until then we didn't really know whether there were very many other planets at all there were two competing models for how solar systems formed one they would just form naturally out of dust when you're in the very process of making a star and Immanuel Kant the philosopher was one of the first exponents of that theory so on that view there will be planets all over the place but the other view was that you only got a solar system when one star crashed into another, or a, plan, a, a comet uh, crashed into a star. And of course, when you think about the enormous distances between stars, that's going to happen unbelievably rarely. And on that view, we might be the only solar system in the whole galaxy. And that second view uh, held uh, primary place in the 19th century and into the 20th century. It was kind of beginning to be displaced through the 20th century, but it wasn't until we discovered a planet around another star that we really knew that there were going to be any. And I think even the people who favoured that um, 
collapse of dust clouds view have been really surprised by just how many stars have planets. They just seem to be, if not exactly ubiquitous, they're just everywhere. And plenty of them Earth-like in terms of you know temperature and being rocky and that kind of distance from the sun. So um, last time I did the maths on this, I think it comes up to there being about 16 billion billion Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. And that could be wrong by a couple of factors of 10. But you think about 16 billion billion Earth-like planets around sun-like stars in the observable universe. That's the figure that gets me interested in this work uh, with that many places that could be cradles for life. I think we've got to think theologically about what we do if we open the newspaper, as you say, tomorrow, and there's evidence. Are we getting to the point where you now think it's more likely than not, but you expect at some point, maybe not in your lifetime, but at some point we will find life given the, as you say, the, the almost incomprehensible number of Earth-like planets there are? Well, scientists talk about the n equals one problem, you know, number equals one. The number of examples of life that we have is one. Um, so it's quite difficult to extrapolate from one, but it seems to me that life would, the origins of life would have to be sort of unbelievably unlikely, you know, one in 16 billion billion of a, of a chance uh, for us to be the only uh, case. And we do know that life got started on Earth surprisingly early um, when we were just coming out of the Hadean epoch so the Hades like hell like period of volcanoes and bombardment and uh, the earth seemingly almost impossibly un uninhabitable and we're just getting out of that when life seems to get started so that's maybe one other data point that that life seems to have got started here pretty much as, as soon as it could do really um, I don't know how uh, significant that is, but I think with those sorts of numbers, we have to uh, en really entertain the possibility that there's, that there's life out there. And as you say, quite a lot of it might be just something more like bacteria or something like that. Um, and a Christian thought tends to gravitate towards thinking about, well, what about other people like us? I'm working with quite a few scientists now in Cambridge with this, we have a new Leverhulme Centre for life in the universe, thinking about the origins and distribution of life. Um, and they're really interested in just the transition out of the non-living into the living. And if I were, if they knew I was talking too much about uh, sentient beings, they would say that I was running too far into the future. Uh, and I certainly want to work with them on that origins of life question. But I think that the Christian theologian is naturally going to be interested in the drama of personhood and sin and salvation and so on and we we can't help ourselves but think about what if there are other creatures a bit like us but of course the the very nature of 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 the most basic forms of life is still exquisitely complex isn't it because and this is one of the fascinating things that every single life form that's ever been found on uh, on the planet uses exactly the same genetic code uses the same uh, mechanisms for uh, storing information and so on and therefore the biological conclusion is that every single uh, living organism in the entire planet came from one descended from one cell um, and so I for some Christians this is a very strong argument for intelligent design isn't it that that uh, that the exquisite complexity of the um, 
cellular mechanisms must have meant that that God, it couldn't have happened by random forces. God must have intervened supernaturally and uh, and instigated life on this one planet, and therefore it's entirely up to God's sovereignty as to whether he chooses to instigate, uh, initiate life on another planet. What, what would your perspective be on, on that kind of argument? Well, the point about everything being descended from one ancestor, that is what all the biology points to. I think we should be clear about what that means. It doesn't mean that there was only a single cell on the Earth at that point. There are billions and billions of cells on the Earth at that point. It's just that uh, in the contingencies and vagaries of history since, uh, it's, it's this cell's ancestors that have gone on to survive and populate the planet rather than the others. Um, so uh, that ancestor, he's sometimes, it's sometimes called Luca, the last universal common ancestor, uh, is a very long way down the line from the origins of life. And scientists naturally think that there is a scientific story that takes you by evolutionary processes from whatever the very beginning is, the bare chemicals there are, through to that, um, that creature which, uh, as it happens, is the uh, last universal uh, common ancestor. So I have to say I am not an enthusiast for intelligent design arguments, uh, partly because it relies on a God of the gaps approach, uh, and I think that makes Christianity vulnerable. If you're saying, ah, well, this doesn't work unless God is uh, intervening in some sort of way, and then you find out how it could work, then uh, the Christian is left vulnerable. It's also just, in terms of my temperament, my, my intellectual outlook, I want to find God working in everything, and there's a very strong sense down Christian history that God does work in everything, in it being what it is. It doesn't have to stop being what it is for God to be acting in it. God is the source and origin uh, of all things. So uh, to sort of venture a really terrible pun here, I, I want to be able to find God in the whole with a W rather than the whole without a W. I'm not looking for some kind of gap that can't be explained by science and I say, ah, oh, there's God. I want to see the whole glorious unfolding story that science tells us and see God in that whole H, W-H-O-L-E. Uh, uh, sorry, it's a rather corny pun there, but I, I think it's, uh, it's an important point. And I always want to give science a run for its money uh, before I would invoke uh, some sort of miraculous account. And so if, so if we've discovered this bacteria or algae, let's say, um, uh, it's not sentient kind of personhood-like life, but it is obviously an enormous scientific discovery, um, you're you're a kind of theologian of, of the kind of natural sciences as well. Is there a particular kind of part of your theology that you would have to rip up and write and start again, or would do you think we could integrate the fact that there is a planet so many light years away that has algae on into our ex, ex, existing kind of theological framework quite quite harmoniously? I can't see that. Well, almost really anything that that this is going to throw at us, sentient or not sentient. Is going to cause me to rip up theology and i say that not just defensive not at all defensively but having spent quite a lot of time in the last six years thinking about it so i hope that's some uh reassurance but certainly the fact that there's uh single-celled or uh, creatures elsewhere it seems to me uh no no theological 
threat at all. And we talked a little bit last time about the doctrine of creation and about this idea that you get down history of, a, of an expectation and a celebration of the multiplicity and variedness of creation. You know, stars and planets, moons, uh, all the rest, and life. Because we, you know, if the world is created by the infinite, boundless, plenitudinous, perfectly good uh, God, then there's just this sort of ripple of that, a sort of the, even the faintest echo of that in the world is going to be uh, only there through this kind of riotous multiplicity and that all of these finite things, uh, even together, can't reflect the glory of God. But because they're all finite, uh, you, you get this manifoldness and variation uh, that, that, that together bears some witness uh, to, to the greatness of God. Um, and, of course, one of the things that theologians have wanted to say about God is that God is living. That's one of the great attributes of God, is for God to be the living God. Uh, and therefore, for that to be manifest, witnessed to, imaged in the world, uh, in in many, many different ways, seems to me, as a Christian believer, uh, not only plausible, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to go so far to say what one would expect, but um, yeah, maybe that. Maybe the, the Christian can go so far as to say that not only is it not surprising, but it even fits beautifully with the theological picture that the world should be full of life, reflecting the life of the living God. of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. So what about intelligent life then? I had the privilege of having a conversation with Martin Rees, the previous Astronomer Royal, who is fascinated by um, the idea of intelligent life elsewhere in the cosmos. And he's told me that he thought the most likely thing that would happen is that we, some in our space exploration, would come across some kind of uh, machines which were left behind by um, some intelligent biological uh, species uh, elsewhere in the in in the galaxy. You know, the, the the biological species would die out very rapidly, but the artifacts, if it was an intelligent. Uh, species, it, it, like us, it would make satellites and ex, uh, exploratory um, rockets and things like that, and that they would carry on going through the cosmos for you know millions of years, and eventually uh, we would run across them, and so that would be our first contact. He thought. So, you know, let's just do the thought experiment. NASA announced that they've picked up this artifact, and it and it's it's it must have come from an intelligent alien species, um, but that could have been millions of years ago. Um, how would uh, orthodox mainstream Christian theology deal with that? Well, we've got there both the question of there being other intelligent life in the universe, but there's also the the hint of tragedy. Um, around what you've just described there with that sense of this species having died out. So I suppose we could come across a satellite uh, as we've launched satellites into space uh, and that wouldn't necessarily be any witness to 
whether life had died out on Earth or not. Uh, but there is something, I think, quite eschatological about this idea that species don't last forever. And that raises, I think, really interesting questions about life on Earth. Um, and you know, we could talk about that. Uh, there's also the, you know, the Fermi paradox. Where are they all? Um, why have we not detected them? And one response to that is uh, the rather bleak uh, uh, diagnosis that when creatures get to a certain stage of development where they basically have the capacity to destroy themselves, they do. And that's why you don't get these uh, proliferation of, in, of advanced uh, civilizations in the universe. So there's, there's something uh, rather gloomy about that. And we could uh, talk about that. It might uh, encourage us to uh, not be complacent about disarmament and the way which we treat the Earth, for instance. Um, but if there was other intelligent life in the universe, I would not find my theology at all threatened. And I think it'd be quite interesting for me to pose that back to you and ask uh, on what grounds do you think that uh, theology might face challenges? And then we could talk about those themes. I think that's a great question, Andrew. And, and the kind of immediate thing that jumps to my mind is is incarnation and, and the Imago Dei, the image of God. I, you know, it's my understanding, I'm not a theologian, my understanding of, you know, of that, the kind of Christian story about our created order is that humans are set apart from all other life, including intelligent, sentient life, dolphins and dogs and things, whatever sentience they might have, because we are, we alone in created order are made in the image of God. And that, you know, you know, some people talk about the language of soul and spirit, but fundamentally it's about that's you know we we reflect something of, of the eternal god in our kind of created order at, at, in a way that a tree or a dolphin doesn't and so my immediate question is do we see these other aliens this intelligent life as akin to to a dolphin you know that is clearly created and is alive but is is not equivalent in kind of spiritual terms to us because they don't they're not made in the image of god or would we see them as kind of fellow image bearers like us Hmm. Well, the image of God is a great topic to talk about here. And I think that there would be people who would push back on what you've said and want to try to group some of these creatures that you've talked about more uh, with us than uh, separate from us. So dolphins, uh, potentially uh, crows and rooks and so on, the corvids, uh, maybe octopuses and so on. So I think... Uh, that will be an interesting conversation. I, I err in your direction, I think, in saying these are glorious things. They might have forms of uh, mental capacity that are fantastic that we don't need to deny. I don't see in them quite the same, well, at all, the same capacity for language uh, and so on. So I, I, let, let's, let's uh, for the sake of the argument, uh, put them on one side and say that human beings really do stand out amongst all the creatures on Earth as, as uh, being in the image of God, as I say, some people will push back on that, but let's let's take that line. I think there's just a really significant distinction to be made in between saying that the Imago Dei, and we could talk about what it means, that the image of God uh, is only in human beings, and another thing, which is to say that what makes us in the image of God is that other things aren't. Uh, maybe not, I've, put that as, I've not put that as clearly as I might do. Um, on one view, you say we're in the image of God and pr perhaps other things are too. And that doesn't demote us in any way. Uh, just as it happens on Earth, we're the only uh, creatures uh, that, that 
of which that's true. But there, I do come across this from students, who, uh, on the other hand, saying, no, what the image of God consists in is that we're set apart from everything else. And on that view, if anything else was in the image of God, that would seem to demote us. Now, I just don't see any reason why I need to entertain, well, why I need to accept or, or believe the second view of things. Um, I think that another creature being in the image of God doesn't demote me in any way. Uh, of course, it's important then to get into the, the detail about what we might think about that, but I just basically, I don't see the Imago Dei as intrinsically a competitive affair. Hmm. Then that raises the question: If we, if we're happy to 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 see these alien life forms as also bearing the Imago Dei, then my next question, I suppose, as a Christian, is: um, Did Jesus come incarnate to them as well, like he came incarnate to us? And and do they have the same parallel kind of salvation, redemptive history that saw God enter into their their um, lifeness, their humanity, but not their humanity because they're not humans, uh, die on somehow die on the cross, bear their sins, rise again. Is is there a parallel incarnation story as well? So I'm going to be a really annoying guest here and just say one or two other things about the image of God because it's just such a such an important topic. Sure. Just to say to listeners, you know, it's worth thinking. What do you think the image of God consists in? And there are various traditions, uh, and one has been you know, our capacities like uh, freedom, intellect, will, capacity to love, so on. Seems to me if other creatures elsewhere have that, I'm no less wonderful for still having those things. Other people have talked to, about capacity for relationship. Some people have talked about being God's representative and having a kind of delegated role in the universe. Seems to me I can have that role, we can have that role on Earth. I don't have that role with respect to some planet elsewhere, and maybe God has God's own representatives. Um, elsewhere so that's uh, another thing to say about the about the image of god is uh, okay maybe that's a on-off kind of yes no thing but the christian tradition has had a lot to say about all creatures bearing the likeness of god in some way you know if everything about everything comes from god then there's nothing that's good or beautiful true noble excellent no excellence about any creature that isn't in some way um, a reflection of uh, of, of who God is. So, sorry, that's just me uh, un unable to resist uh, saying a little bit more about the Imago Dei. But what about the Incarnation? This is, I think, the real touchstone of debate about theology and life elsewhere in the universe. And from, I'd say, before the 20th century, you don't really get anybody entertaining the idea of there being more than one Incarnation. And that's because people think that what happens on Earth is enough to do all the redemptive work that needs to be done. And I, you know, I completely agree with that. But then from the 20th century onwards, you get people willing to ask that question. And I do encourage your, read, your listeners to have a look at a poem by Alice Maynell, a uh, Roman Catholic poet, died, uh, died in the middle-ish, no, early let me think, 1920 or something like that, 1930. Uh, she was born in, um, in the 19th century and she has this wonderful poem called Christ in the Universe in which she imagines lots of different interstellar races in the life of the world to come, comparing notes about how God has dealt with them. And she uh, has, a part of that is that we're telling the story of God's work with us in Christ. And they uh, talk about the, the ways in which they've 
that you know, had God amongst them. Uh, so from the 20th century onwards, it does become uh, a kind of a live option. And I think there are probably five chapters about uh, the incarnation in my uh, astrobiology and Christian doctrine books. So I've got quite a lot to say and you're going to have to <laughs> rein me in. Give us the Cliff Notes version. Give us the... Uh... <laughs> okay, so I, I think that what is really helpful is to be theologically precise. Um, and I think sometimes it is the theology that's a little bit the casualty in discussions with science, that we sort of get so interested in the science that the theology can be the junior partner. And I think it really is important that we're precise about what we mean, because otherwise we can just be talking past one another uh, in terms of... Um, you know, uh, our theological conversations. So um, I think that what we wouldn't be talking about is is Jesus coming elsewhere in the universe because Jesus is the human being that is God with us as a human being, God having taken up a human nature. It seems to me the question to have is, does God take up other creaturely natures elsewhere? Um, but I think any talk about there being more than one Jesus is just theologically imprecise because Jesus is the is the divine human being and there aren't human beings elsewhere in the universe then I just I don't think that makes sense and he's unrepeatable um, so I reckon there are two pretty separate conversations that go on in theology about this one is people asking whether this is even possible and people take uh, divergent sides on that and I can point you to people who say this just doesn't make any sense it's impossible for there to be more than one incarnation and then other people who think it is possible and then there are other people who talk about whether it's necessary or not and they're quite different conversations and I think my angle would be that it's possible but not necessary so I don't think there's any reason to say that God taking up a human nature means God is then unable to take up another nature as well but I do think it makes sense to say that the life, death and resurrection of Christ on earth is enough to, to redeem the whole universe. Now, I, well, I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll um, see what you say about that. Can I, um, I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff and unfortunately we're coming to the end and, and uh, I think these are issues which it should be good to explore further, possibly in, in, a, in future episodes. But just before we finish, could I raise an issue which I find very interesting um, and that is the comparison between an artificial intelligence, an intelligent life which we create on Earth and encountering an alien intelligent life out there in the universe because in both cases there's this fascinating question about how can we know what the significance of this being is how do we know whether this being is indeed conscious or intelligent how do we know whether it can have a relationship with God and um, what's your thoughts on that assuming we did make we you know contact with an intelligent being we'd have to ask the question what is their spiritual status you know do we pray with them do we witness to them uh, etc and and the same problem with an intelligent apparently intelligent machine i think i'd want to begin by saying that absolutely everything is related to god that that sort of sense of relationship of all things to god as their creator and the source of everything that's good about them and 
God who is in some sense the destiny of all things. Uh, all things are made by God and for God and um, you know, and, wit and witness to God and for, uh, for God's delight. Uh, so I, I think I'd want to begin in saying I don't need to import or o overlay some sort of question of, of relation or relationship. It's always there. It's there for every atom and stone and, and tree, even before you get to anything that's intelligent. So um, any there's, there's always the question of working out whether this thing uh, is intelligent or has sentience or not, and you've got the Turing test and so on, and it's a, it's a big uh, question in, in artificial intelligence. But it seems to me that the Christian can assume that in as much as you even have the first flickerings of, of intelligence or sentience, God is going to be the background of that sentience because God is the background of all things. And there's a lot of interesting writing from um, from Jesuits in the 20th century, Rana and de Lubac, I think of as in particular, uh, who who want to orientate intelligence and consciousness just as such as being always against the backdrop of a kind of inchoate awareness of God. And they think that's just characteristic of intelligence and sentience as such. So I would not have any trouble in saying that wherever there's intelligence uh, there are going to be questions about why is there anything rather than nothing about questions about truth and goodness and so on that are going to point people towards God as the origin of all things fascinating I mentioned thinking about theology in terms of what's possible and in terms of what's necessary and I'm a little bit uneasy about applying any of those categories either of those categories to God as if I knew exactly what is and isn't possible, and certainly I'm a bit wary about telling God what God has or has not to do. But the people in the medieval period, the scholastic theologians, have this wonderful kind of intermediate category of suitability or fittingness. So it's uh, not telling God what to do, uh, but saying that one thing we can be absolutely sure of is that God does the fitting or suitable thing. And when it comes to the idea of there being more than one incarnation, my instinct is to see something suitable or fitting about God drawing alongside other creatures in that way elsewhere. So I completely accept the life, death and resurrection of Christ can set right the whole universe. But when I think about what God has done for us, it has been about also being seen face to face being seen in a way that's comprehensible to us. Uh, Thomas Aquinas talks about God coming among us in Christ in order to be our friend. And I think if the shoe was on the other foot and there was a, some species elsewhere that had a really different form of life, different body, uh, to say to them, well, this happened in Nazareth, uh, in Jerusalem, and by the way, it, it sorts everything out. It's true, it would do, but it might be that a human life is just not very comprehensible, not very communicative to them, not doesn't really have that sense of God drawing close to them to be their friend. So although I completely accept that the, the work of Christ avails for everything, I, and I really don't want to say what God has or has not to do, but my instinct, in as much as you're interested in where my theological instinct lies, is that there would be something sort of familiarly suitable or fitting or beautiful even about the idea of God uh, 
drawing near to each creature in its predicament, in its form of life, in a way that parallels what God has done for us uh, in Jesus. But I will let uh, I will let God do uh, whatever God wants to do because it will be perfectly and beautifully uh, fitting or suitable. Yeah, amen to that. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense to me from my very uninformed point of view. I think I would definitely tend towards the same same line of thinking. Um, thanks so much, Andrew. This has been such a, a brilliant conversation, both last week and this week. I've, I've learned loads and I hope our listeners have too. Um, do you want to just quickly uh, explain more about uh, your book when it comes out? What's it called and how people can get hold of it if they want to dig a bit, well, a lot more deeper into this idea of theology and astrobiology? Yes, it's called... Astrobiology and Christian Doctrine is going to come out from Cambridge University Press towards the end of 2022. And I would say that as well as hoping to help us all be a bit more prepared for how to respond as Christians to if there's news of life elsewhere in the universe, this topic offers us uh, a really interesting way of looking at some familiar questions from other angles. So even from a new angle. So even if it turns out that there's no life elsewhere in the universe or that we certainly don't discover it in our lifetime. I do think that looking at our traditional Christian themes from this perspective uh, offers something quite uh, lively and informative. Uh, I'll also mention that I talk from time to time about God as the origin and the destiny of all things and if people want to pursue that in a more theological and philosophical way I wrote a book called Participation in God, a study in Christian doctrine and metaphysics and that is, um, I think, the most fun book I've ever, uh, ever written and um, uh, is an exploration of God as the beginning and end of all things. And that might be of interest to some listeners, too. Brilliant. Well, um, uh, would really recommend uh, you digging into more of Andrew's work. Um, I, I can't pretend that I've read all of his theology. It's some of it's slightly above my pay grade, but uh, I'm so pleased to have had, had the chance uh, to bring you on matters of life and death and 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 talk through some of these ideas. Um, thanks again uh, uh, to for you for listening. Um, as always, you can get in touch with us if you'd like to suggest a guest or a, or a theme you'd like us to dig into by emailing molad m o l a d at premier.org.uk. Uh, but otherwise uh, we'll see you next week bye-bye you've been listening to matters of life and death a podcast from premier unbelievable